welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome back to another episode of First Incision. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is the upper GI esophagogastric module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And our patient or topic we're going to be covering today is that of gastric cancer. So as always, I'm going to start with a little bit of a background about gastric cancer. Gastric cancer is a primary malignancy which arises from the gastric epithelium. It's the fourth most common cancer worldwide, and certain countries, including Japan and Korea, have proportionately high rates of this disease. There's a decreasing incidence in Western countries, which is thought to be due to decreased smoking habits and a change in identifying and treating Helicobacter pylori. This disease has a male preponderance with about a two to one ratio of male to females. Some risk factors for the development of gastric cancer can be split up into environmental, medical, and genetic risks. Environmental risk factors include low socioeconomic status, a diet that's low in fruit and vegetables and high in salted, smoked, or preserved foods, or foods that have a high nitrate composition, being obese, and smoking. Some medical risk factors include uh, Helicobacter pylori infection, which has a six times increased risk of development of gastric cancer. Other ones include prior gastric surgery, such as a distal gastrectomy, especially a Billroth II reconstruction, Epstein-Barr virus infection, chronic atrophic gastritis, pernicious anemia, gastric adenomatous polyps, and lastly, talking about the genetic risk factors for gastric cancer, there is a couple of inherited syndromes that increase the risk of gastric cancer. And this includes hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, which is a mutation in the CDH1 gene. And this is associated with a 70 to 80% lifetime risk of the development of gastric cancer. Other potential genetic conditions that lead to an increased risk of gastric cancer include familial adenomatous polyposis uh, with the development of dysplastic fundic gland polyps. Lee from any syndrome with a P53 mutation and Lynch syndrome. Which leads us into a discussion about the pathogenesis of gastric cancer. The main hypothesis is the Korea hypothesis, C-O-R-R-E-A. And this is the theory that there's a pathway of transformation from normal mucosa to gastritis to atrophic gastritis, to metaplasia, to dysplasia, and then to cancer. This is a pretty well-accepted hypothesis of the pathway for the development of gastric cancer. And a couple of those risk factors we talked about, you may put together, have a pathway that leads to either gastritis or um, atrophic gastritis. So for example, helicobacter pylori infection causes chronic gastritis and eventually uh, increasing loss of the gastric glands 
and replacement of normal mucosa by intestinal metaplasia, which then predisposes to malignant transformation. And specifically with Helicobacter pylori, it's interesting that one particular strain of Helicobacter, the CAG-A positive Helicobacter strains, um, has a higher association with the development of gastric cancer. And that strain is a lot more prevalent in um, some countries such as Japan, which may correlate with why they have higher rates of gastric cancer than the Western world. Other conditions such as chronic atrophic gastritis um, and pernicious anemia with an autoimmune atrophic gastritis or atrophic mucosa um, uh, can also be seen to fit into that pathway. The other thing to talk about is the genetic changes that are thought to occur during this pathway and that contribute to the development of gastric cancer. So specifically, they've found an association between overexpression of COX-2 and cyclin D2 P53 mutations, which, as I mentioned before, leave from any syndrome, which is an autosomal dominant inherited P53 mutation, increases your risk of gastric cancer. Gastric cancer has also been found to have microsatellite instability, which is where I think the Lynch syndrome uh, fits into that predisposition, and also can have alteration in transcription factors such as CDX1 and CDX2. Before I get into gastric cancer, I wanted to briefly mention some of the precursor lesions that you may find on gastric biopsies and are important, A, to know what to do with if you get a biopsy with one of these results, and B, is important to know what the potential risk is of development of gastric cancer if you see one of these precursor lesions in your patient. The first precursor lesion is chronic atrophic gastritis which I have mentioned in that development pathway just before. This in itself is not a pre-malignant condition and is usually a response to chronic inflammation, which may be initiated by helicobacter pylori infection, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, chronic alcohol use, bile reflux, or autoimmune gastritis. And this results in the shrinkage or disappearance of the typical gastric glands and can be followed by fibrosis of the lamina propria. Treatment of this is treatment of the cause itself with eradication of helicobacter pylori, use of a PPI, and usually repeat gastroscopy every three years. The next condition I wanted to talk about is intestinal metaplasia. This has the same steps as I've just mentioned with chronic atrophic gastritis, but then involves replacement of the native glands by metaplastic glands. And these glands can be intestinal type or a pseudopyloric type. Um, and this is associated with an increased risk of carcinoma development. So it does require helicobacter pylori eradication to try to reverse this process, use of a PPI, and usually repeat gastroscopy and mapping biopsies every three years. The last group in precursor lesions is gastric dysplasia. And it seems like we have come across the concept of dysplastic lesions in breast and in esophagus. So this corresponds to those, but we're talking about them in the stomach now. This has also been called intraepithelial neoplasia. And usually you would actually see this at endoscopy, especially if it was a high-grade dysplastic lesion with uh, a flat or depressed or polypoid growth pattern. So it would look abnormal compared to the normal mucosa. Histologically, this is characterized by 
cytological atypia, so atypical looking cells, and can be classified as either low grade or high grade. Low grade has the risk of development of interadenocarcinoma um, of 23% within 10 months to four years, and high grade has a risk of progression to adenocarcinoma of 60 to 80% um, over uh, one to five years. So these lesions um, are really important to identify and also to know what to do with. So if you have a low-grade lesion, again, we should try to eradicate helicobacter pylori and treat with a PPI. And in addition, we should ensure that there's good mapping biopsies, that if there's any visible lesions, that these are biopsied and potentially resected so that you can make sure you know that there's no high-grade component. And you should be repeating that gastroscopy within 12 months. A high-grade lesion is classified as carcinoma in situ, so this should be managed as per gastric cancer, which is what we're going to talk about next. So finally moving into the juicy part of the episode to talk a little bit more about gastric cancer. How may gastric cancer present? In some countries that have screening, such as in Japan, this can be picked up asymptomatically on a screening program. In Australia, though, we don't have screening unless patients have a known genetic predisposition. This includes in patients with hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. So this is that condition with a mutation in the CDH1 gene. And in these patients, they should be managed with a gastroscopy yearly or even with prophylactic surgery. The diagnostic criteria required for genetic testing of patients to look for hereditary diffuse gastric cancer is either two gastric cancers in the family, one of which was a diffuse gastric cancer diagnosed at less than 50, three confirmed diffuse gastric cancers in first or second degree relatives, independent of age, an individual with diffuse gastric cancer diagnosed before the age of 40, or a personal or family history of diffuse gastric cancer and lobular breast cancer with at least one case diagnosed before the age of 50. So in general, these can be picked up instantly at a gastroscopy done for another reason. It can present with vague epigastric discomfort, which is typically constant, non-radiating and not relieved by eating. It can give you an ulcer-type epigastric pain, could give patients reflux, Patients often present with weight loss due to the catabolic effects of the cancer and also potentially due to early satiety or obstruction. Patients with advanced lesions can present with gross gastric outlet obstruction or dysphagia, and they can also present with bleeding, which may present occultly as anemia or with hematemesis. On examination of a patient with gastric cancer, you may find nothing if there is an early lesion, but there are a few, uh, I guess, pathonomic findings um, that you may find with especially advanced gastric cancer. So this includes a positive Virchow's node, which is the left supraclavicular lymph node, which if enlarged can be a sign of gastric cancer. The presence of a sister Mary Joseph nodule, which is a palpable lesion at the umbilicus, which can uh, be related to peritoneal disease. Patients may have hepatomegaly or jaundice if they have liver or peritoneal metastases and can also have a Kruckenberg tumor with evidence of metastases to the ovaries and a pelvic mass. 
investigation of patients presenting with uh, signs and symptoms of gastric cancer involves first confirming the diagnosis, and this is usually done with a gastroscopy. The important thing about doing a gastroscopy for gastric cancer is that you are clearly documenting where the gastric cancer is, the distribution, any other abnormal findings, and the proximal and distal extent of the tumours. Another really important thing is making sure you get a biopsy to diagnose the problem because there are a number of different tumours that can present in the stomach. The next part of investigation is staging, and this aims to give us prognostic information about where the disease is and whether there's any evidence of metastatic disease. This could include an endoscopic ultrasound. I'm not really clear in clinical practice how this fits in exactly. In a recent shoot run by Anscoza, the presenter talked about it being useful to determine the T stage of the tumour and that it could be useful to biopsy an out-of-field node that may change the staging to M1 disease and therefore make that tumour unresectable. But I've also read elsewhere that it's not great at determining between T1A and T1B, which is why you might want to do it if you are considering an EMR, um, but that it may be good at differentiating T1 from T2, etc. So we'll ask our special guest uh, when we get them on the podcast about the role of EUS in investigation of gastric cancer. A CT chest abdopelvis with IV and oral contrast is an important staging scan to do for gastric cancer. In addition, patients will also undergo a staging laparoscopy with washings looking for peritoneal cytology and the presence of occult peritoneal disease. This can also give you information about whether or not the tumor is involving adjacent organs and confirm the location of the tumor, which may help you decide which operation you may do for this tumour. PET scans in Australia are funded for gastroesophageal junction or um, tumours at the gastric cardia. These tumours will be PET avin about 60 to 90% of the time, and that really depends on the histopathological characteristics of the tumour. In that um, especially diffuse and signet cell type and mucinous type adenocarcinomas are often not PET avid. In addition, PET scans will only detect peritoneal disease in about 50% of cases. They're not funded for gastric cancer in general. We can only and usually only do them for gastroesophageal junction or CWIT type 3 tumors. But if it is positive, it can potentially pick up occult metastatic disease that you weren't able to see on the CT scan. MRI may be used um, as a complementary investigation if you're worried about uh, defining liver lesions and whether or not they may or may not be metastases. In terms of the biopsy and diagnosis of gastric cancer, there are a number of different types of tumors that can be found in the stomach. The most common of these is adenocarcinoma in 90 to 95% of cases. And there's a number of different ways I've found to differentiate gastric adenocarcinoma. The first one is the Lorin classification, which differentiates these into intestinal or diffuse types. An intestinal type is usually a mass-forming type, which is associated with that Correa hypothesis of pathogenesis I talked about earlier. It's thought to be an environmental sporadic tumor and is usually a well-differentiated tumor. 
The diffuse type is more likely to be associated with the familial type of gastric cancer, which is that one that's associated with the mutation in the CDH1 gene, the hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. And that's why diffuse is in the title, I guess. Um, But basically, this is a more sort of ulcerating lesion and diffuse because the cells, uh, rather than forming a mass, sort of infiltrate through the wall of the stomach. And if that infiltration is extensive, then you can get this picture of what's called linitis plastica, which is where you get rigid, non-distendable stomach due to that diffuse infiltration. This is associated with the CDH1 gene, which I mentioned, but in particular, this is a means that the, the tumor cells have lost the E cadherin, which is one of the cellular adhesion molecules, which explains why those cells aren't sticking together and therefore are diffusely infiltrating. Just as an aside, you may remember from the breast cancer tutes that loss of the E cadherin gene is a hallmark of lobular breast cancer. And patients with diffuse hereditary gastric cancer or a mutation of the CDH1 gene have a high risk of lobular breast cancer as well. The intestinal and diffuse types, as per the Lauren classification, are considered to be pathologically different, but clinically they are both treated similarly, as we'll go into. The main key differences in terms of their behavior is that the diffuse type is more prone to peritoneal disease. Um, and the intestinal type is more at risk of liver metastases. Some other ways to split up the adenocarcinomas of the stomach is the WHO classification that looks at the histopathological subtypes, and the common histopathological subtypes of gastric adenocarcinoma include tubular, papillary, mucinous, signet ring, or mixed. The correlation between the WHO classification and the Lauren classification is basically that the tubular and papillary types of adenocarcinoma seem to mostly fall within the intestinal type, and the signet ring seems to mostly fall within the diffuse type, as per the Lauren classification. The last classification to talk about for gastric cancer is relatively new classification system, and this is looking at the molecular classification of gastric cancer. It's hoping in a similar way that we have molecular classifications for breast cancer and how that guides our different treatment modalities, that by understanding the different molecular classifications of gastric cancer, targeted treatments will be able to be developed. The Cancer Genome Atlas Project um, proposed a molecular classification system which looks at four different subtypes of gastric cancer. These are EBV, Epstein-Barr virus positive tumors, microsatellite unstable tumors, genomically stable tumors, and tumors with chromosomal instability. Like I said at the moment, this doesn't have a clinical applicability, but hopefully will result in some changes in the future to the way that we treat these patients. So keep an eye on the molecular subtyping and management of gastric cancer. Other types of tumors that can be found in the stomach that are a lot more rare include gastrointestinal stromal tumors, lymphomas, neuroendocrine tumors or neuroendocrine carcinomas, adenosquamous cell carcinomas, and undifferentiated tumors. Another way to, I guess, classify gastric cancers is by their macroscopic appearance. And I found two different classification systems that 
could be used to describe the macroscopic appearance of gastric tumors. The first is the Paris classification, and this is looking only at early gastric cancers. And the second is the Borman classification, which is used for advanced gastric cancers. It's worth looking up a picture of the different um, appearances of tumors as per the Paris classification while you're listening to this. But basically, this classifies them as either protruding, non-protruding, or excavated types of tumors. The second classification system, the Borman classification, has five different types of macroscopic appearances of gastric cancers. And again, I'll mention this is for more advanced tumors. So Paris is more for sort of T1 lesions. This is for T2+. And this includes type 1, which are protruded or polypoid lesions, type 2, which are ulcerated lesions, usually with elevated borders, Type 3 are ulcerated but infiltrating margins. Type 4 is diffusely infiltrating, so this would cover those diffuse types, gastric cancers and lionitis plastica. And type 5, which is not fitting these other types. I'm not really clear how these fit into uh, the prognostic or clinical management of these tumors, so we might ask our special guest about that when we get them on the program. In terms of staging of gastric cancer, I found two different staging systems which apply to gastric cancer. The first is simply splitting it into early and advanced gastric cancer. In Australia, we don't deal with a lot of early gastric cancer given we don't do a lot of screening. So I think this is more relevant in um, Japan and Korea, but it's good to know about. So early means that the tumor is limited to the mucosa or submucosa and has no lymph node involvement. And from a prognostic perspective, these tumors have a 90% five-year survival with treatment. An advanced gastric cancer is anything more than that. So if it's invading into the muscularis propria and beyond, or if there's any evidence of lymph node involvement. And these have a much worse prognosis with about a um, 36% five-year survival with surgery and chemotherapy. The next staging system is the TNM classification system, which we should all be very familiar with by now. So briefly, I'll just revise the histopathology of the wall of the stomach. So firstly, the internal layer, most internal layer is the mucosa, which has three layers, the epithelium, the lamina propria, and the muscularis mucosa. Underneath this is the submucosa. And then underneath that is the muscularis propria, which is made up of that inner oblique, middle circular, and outer longitudinal muscle layers. Remember there's three layers in the stomach. And the outside layer to this is the serosa. So going through the TNM staging system, tumor in situ, TIS, is intraepithelial tumor without invasion of the lamina propria. So this includes high-grade dysplasia. T1 tumors invade into only the submucosa, being split into T1A, which is invading the lamina propria or muscularis mucosa only, so not extending past the mucosa, and T1B invading the submucosa. T2 invades the muscularis propria, any of those muscle layers. T3 is invasion of the subserosa without invasion of the visceral peritoneum or adjacent structures. And T4 is tumor perforating the serosa or invading adjacent structures. 
The end stage has to do with lymph node metastases, as we all know about. N1 are metastases in one to two regional lymph nodes. N2 is metastases in three to six regional lymph nodes. And N3 is metastases in greater than seven regional lymph nodes. Metastases on the M stage has to do with distant metastases. And M0 is no metastases. M1 are distant metastases. And this includes positive peritoneal cytology and a mental seeding. The extent of lymph node involvement is the most important independent prognostic factor in gastric cancer. And when we talk about regional lymph nodes in gastric cancer, we're talking about those that we remove at resection. So this includes the perigastric nodes along the greater and lesser curve, nodes at the left gastric artery, common hepatic artery, celiac trunk, splenic hilum and splenic artery, and the hepatoduodenal nodes. So once you have diagnosed a gastric cancer and appropriately staged that gastric cancer, this patient should be discussed at a multidisciplinary team meeting and managed at a centre that has expertise in dealing with gastric cancer. There are a number of options for management, and these, as with most cancers we're going to talk about, include chemotherapy, which can be given pre- or post-operatively, radiotherapy, surgery, and palliative interventions. In terms of chemotherapy, there's a couple of studies that are important to know about for chemotherapy in gastric cancer. And these are similar to those ones we talked about in esophageal cancer, as mostly the esophageal cancer guidelines have been taken by from subgroups of these trials, which were originally made to look at gastric cancer. The first one is the MAGIC trial, which was published in 2009 as a UK trial and looked at surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then surgery. And this found a survival advantage uh, for neoadjuvant chemotherapy and surgery over surgery alone. The chemotherapy they used was epirubicin, cisplatin, and fluorouracil, or 5-FU. As with all studies, there were some criticisms, which included that it included the cardioesophageal tumors, which we now treat as esophageal cancers. There was a number of patients in the neoadjuvant treatment group that had an R2 resection, which was thought to be due to inadequate staging, and patients didn't have diagnostic laparoscopy preoperatively. Saying all that, though, it was used as standard of care for a while. However, in 2019, a German trial compared FLOT chemotherapy with the chemotherapy from the MAGIC trial. So FLOT chemotherapy is four preoperative and four postoperative two-week cycles of doxetaxel, oxaliplatin, leucovorin, and 5-FU compared with the MAGIC chemo, the epirubicin, cisplatin, and 5-FU for T2+. Any nodes, either so nodes negative or node positive, resectable tumors. And they found that there was a survival advantage in FLOT over the magic chemotherapy with a median survival of 50 months with FLOT and 35 months with the magic chemo. So that's really now the standard of care for gastric cancers. 
An important one to look out for, which I mentioned in our esophageal cancer episode, is the Top Gear trial, which is an Australian and New Zealand trial, which is looking at chemotherapy plus radiotherapy for gastric cancer. And that's currently recruiting at the moment, and it will be interesting to see what the outcome of that study is. So talking about all of that, what do we actually do for gastric cancer? To be honest, the decision-making is pretty complex and mostly depends on the tumor stage as well as patient factors and importantly their fitness for surgery because consideration of a gastric resection is a pretty major undertaking. Breaking it down though and assuming that a patient is fit for surgery, I'm just going to run through a couple of different potential treatment pathways which are based on the stage of the patient's tumor. The first group is early gastric cancer. So These are patients who have a T1A tumor, so this is limited to the mucosa. Reading through the literature, the guideline for treatment of these tumors includes an option for an endoscopic mucosal resection or an endoscopic submucosal resection. There are some different specific indications for EMR in early gastric cancer, which include a tumor less than two centimeters in size with no ulceration, T1A tumors as T1B, so if there's invasion to the submucosa, have a 5 to 11% risk of lymph node involvement, which is considered unacceptable, and also that the lesion can be removed completely in, from uh, excision in the submucosal plane. Despite working on an upper GI unit last year, I didn't don't remember us coming across any early cancers like this and that may be because we don't do screening in Australia and some of the articles I was reading were talking about how this is something that may be done routinely in Japan or Korea where they have those surveillance programs and are picking up these tumors early but I'm not sure where this fits into the management plan of these cancers in Australia and I think this would definitely be a discussion for the MDT but it's good to know I guess that this is a potential option for a very early cancer. Moving on now to resectable gastric cancers. Stage 1 gastric cancers, so these are T1, N0, or N1 gastric cancers, as well as some selected stage 2 tumors. And I'll put a caveat here that this is a little controversial and definitely unit and patient dependent, may proceed directly to surgery, so directly to a resection. For patients with some stage 2 tumors, as well as all stage 3 and stage 4 tumors that are considered resectable, these patients, at least at my institution, would have four rounds of preoperative FLOT, then be restaged with a CT PET scan if they had a PET scan preoperatively and the tumor was avid. And depending on whether or not they had a positive cytology pre-treatment, or whether they had a large bulky tumor, you may consider repeating the staging laparoscopy and washings, but this is not routine. And if there was no progression of disease, would then undergo a resection and then complete their four rounds of post-operative FLOT chemotherapy. We've proven that the use of multimodality therapy in gastric cancer for patients who have non-metastatic resectable disease provides the best possible prognosis. It's thought that the neoadjuvant chemotherapy will eliminate any micrometastatic disease as well as downstage the tumor, getting it ready for the resection. 
So that leads us nicely into having a bit of a discussion about surgery for gastric cancer. As I mentioned earlier, surgery is a pretty major undertaking. In general, when we talk about surgery for gastric cancer, we're talking about either a total gastrectomy or a subtotal gastrectomy. Patients who have been considered for surgery really need to be worked up for their fitness for surgery, and this may include a history and examination, asking them about their exercise tolerance, any comorbidities or potential risk factors. Patients should also have ECGs and often will have uh, stress testing and echoes, as, especially as part of their chemotherapy workup as well. And importantly, they may undergo cardiopulmonary exercise testing, which is important for determining the patient's ability to survive the surgery, I guess, from a cardiovascular perspective. And most of these patients, at least in my institution, will undergo a prehabilitation program where they will be given exercises and um, try to improve their cardiopulmonary status prior to surgery. They'll often see a perioperative medical physician to improve their comorbidities and important to consider in these patients nutrition as given the location of their tumor, they are prone to having issues with oral intake and weight loss and making sure they have adequate nutrition is really important to improving their oncological and post-surgical outcomes. Going into a bit more detail about the different operations, the goal of operating on gastric cancer is to achieve an R0 resection. So it should only be undertaken if you think that you can achieve an R0 resection. An R1 resection is where you have a margin that's less than one millimeter. So an R0 means having at least a one millimeter or more margin. In addition to this, you want to make sure you have at least a five centimeter proximal margin and also want to ensure that you are taking the left gastric pedicle as well as the draining regional lymph nodes. The choice of which operation to use depends on the location of the tumor. Tumors that are in the cardia of the stomach or the proximal stomach should have a total gastrectomy and are usually reconstructed with a Roux-en-Y esophago-jejunostomy. A total gastrectomy involves removal of the entire stomach, adjacent lymph nodes, and the greater omentum. For tumors that are located in the distal stomach, where you think you can get a 5 to 6 centimeter margin above the tumor, these patients may be considered for a subtotal gastrectomy, where the distal stomach is removed, as well as the greater omentum and draining lymph nodes, and a gastrojejunostomy is then performed with the remnant stomach. An important thing to note just in terms of terminology is that a subtotal gastrectomy is an oncological operation and this involves taking the left gastric artery and, and all of the lymph nodes, which is different to a distal gastrectomy, which is something that's done for benign conditions. So just important to be aware of that terminology difference. Having mentioned removing lymph nodes whilst doing a gastrectomy, we should probably talk a little bit about which nodes are removed. This is a little controversial. There's a lot of research out there on how many nodes and which nodes should be resected to provide the best oncological outcomes. And it does seem that the number and which lymph nodes are taken is operator-dependent, region-dependent, country-dependent, really. In general, we should be trying to remove at least 18 lymph nodes with the resection specimen. 
when we're talking about lymph nodes, there are a number of lymph nodes that are regional, and it's worth looking up an image at this point of the regional lymph nodes related to gastrectomies. This will give you a nice anatomical picture with all of the different nodes numbered from 1 to 16. When we're talking about a lymphadenectomy for gastric cancer, there is, there is some terminology that's used. So a D0, D1, D1+, D2 and D3 lymphadenectomies are the ones that are sort of described and are researched in the literature. And basically this refers to which lymph nodes are being removed. So if you remove a certain number of lymph nodes in certain locations, then that has a specific terminology, whether it's D1 or D2. One of my consultants taught me a way of remembering which lymph nodes are which, which I found really helpful. Um, and I'm going to try to get her on the program, actually, so you can listen out for that episode. But she said that you can remember the lesser curvature lymph nodes by the odd numbers, 1, 3, and 5, and the greater curvature lymph nodes being 2, 4, and 6. After that, it's a little bit more confusing, but I remember that number 7 is the left gastric artery lymph nodes, and these are really important because you're always taking the left gastric at the time of surgery, that the nine lymph nodes are the ones along the splenic artery, 10 in the splenic hilum, uh, and that eight is the common hepatic and 12 is lymph nodes along the free edge of the lesser omentum. So when we're talking about D1 lymphadenectomy, we're talking about nodes one to seven. So this includes those lesser curve, greater curve, and the left gastric artery nodes. A D1 plus will also include eight, which is the common hepatic, nine along the splenic artery and 11, which is, sorry, along the um, splenic artery more distally. And a D2 includes all of those, but also includes the most distal splenic artery, the splenic hilum and um, 12, which is those porta hepatis nodes. Some of the original descriptions of a D2 lymphadenectomy included a distal splenectomy and pancreatectomy, but I don't think that's something that we do here in Australia, so we might call that a modified D2 gastrectomy. And then there is also a D3 lymphadenectomy dissection, which has been researched um, mostly in Asian countries with high volumes of gastric cancers. This is a pretty extensive lymphadenectomy that includes removing some of the paraaortic nodes and going uh, hunting pretty uh, deep in the retroperitoneum for these nodes. It's been associated with higher complications and doesn't seem to have much benefit to overall survival. So this isn't something that's routinely done in Australia. The last thing I'd like to touch on when talking about surgery for gastric cancer or any major resection, um, and I think this is really examinable, is the concept of ERAS or enhanced recovery after surgery. The ERAS protocol will vary depending on your institution, but at our hospital, we try to have a really standard pathway for these patients to go through to make sure that preoperatively, intraoperatively, and postoperatively, they are having as many of the different approaches for ERAS as possible. The evidence for ERAS is that one individual component or intervention isn't what improves outcomes. It's using all of the different components together to improve patients' outcomes. So specifically, I've already mentioned nutrition for this group is really important as well as prehabilitation. We also provide our patients with a carbohydrate drink uh, preoperatively in the morning of surgery to minimize their fasting and dehydration. We use opiate sparing techniques wherever possible with epidurals or with local wound catheters. 
We also have a protocol for removing drains, starting early nutrition, mobilization, DVT prophylaxis, and have a dedicated ERAS nurse that helps with patient education um, and patient expectations, which all assist to reduce patients' time in hospital and enhance their recovery. So having covered a lot of information about management pathways for mostly resectable disease and talking about surgery, we should touch on advanced unresectable or metastatic gastric cancer. Unfortunately, 20 to 30% of patients presenting with gastric cancer will present with stage four disease. And the most common sites of metastatic disease are lymphatic spread, peritoneal metastases, hematogenous metastases, especially to the liver, and it can also go to lung, bone, or other distant sites. In terms of palliative measures, options include local therapies for symptom control uh, and also systemic disease to try to improve overall survival. Some of the local palliative measures that we have include palliative resection or a palliative bypass surgery. We can stent obstructing tumours endoscopically. And also there's options for a bleeding tumour that may include endoscopic therapies or angiography techniques. The decision-making around when to offer these different approaches is pretty complex. I would say it would be a place for a multidisciplinary team discussion. It would require some pretty deep consideration of the patient's functional status and prognosis. There are definite pros and cons with surgery in palliative disease There are also a lot of concerns about stents, including stent migration or complications related to those. And so it really should be considered on a case-by-case basis. Radiotherapy may be used to control local symptoms. This could include uh, oozing tumour or obstructive symptoms, but the response is often variable. Palliative chemotherapy is another option for advanced disease. The median survival for these patients is pretty short, three to five months, and chemotherapy may reduce their quality of life rather than improving it, so that's something to consider. Typically, uh, epirubicin, cisplatin, and 5-FU would be offered, and it's been demonstrated that use of triple therapy is better than dual or single modality treatment. And there are two targeted therapies that are currently approved for use in Australia for metastatic gastric cancer, which are trastuzumab, which is a HER2 receptor monoclonal antibody, and also ramucirumab, which is a VEGF inhibitor. These may be considered in metastatic disease by the treating oncologist. In general, gastric cancer prognosis depends on the stage at presentation, So, for example, five-year survival of stage one disease is between 60 and 75%, which reduces to a 5% five-year survival in stage four disease. And some prognostic factors that indicate a higher likelihood of survival in gastric cancer include a lower T&M category, patients who have an R-naught resection, patients who have a tumor that's in the cardia or distal stomach do better than those with tumors in the proximal stomach. The intestinal subtype versus the diffuse subtype has a better prognosis. The lack of lymphovascular invasion is a good prognostic sign. And an adequate lymphadenectomy is also associated with improved survival. 
The last thing I'd like to touch on is the follow-up and post-op care of these patients. So patients who have had a gastrectomy for gastric cancer require close follow-up in the first five years. So this includes every three months for the first three years, six monthly for the next two years after that, which takes them out to five years. And that's a clinical examination and history. Patients will also have a six-monthly CT scan for the first year and then a yearly CT after that. These patients as well are at risk of long-term complications from their gastrectomy. This includes malnutrition and specific nutritional deficiencies they can develop include vitamin B12, vitamin D, iron, and they can also develop steatorrhea because of their reconstruction. So it may be worth um, asking questions about that and measuring serum tests for those nutritional deficiencies. Another long-term complication it's worth asking about is whether patients are having bile reflux, and this can occur if the rule limb is not of a sufficient length. If patients do get reflux, you can theoretically start them on a PPI, but remember that they do not have stomach left to have action of the PPI, and also it's bile reflux, not acid reflux, that's causing their symptoms. These patients um, can have a trial of sucralfate, which can help to coat the uh, stomach remnant or esophageal remnant, um, and also Gaviscon can be useful. The key here, though, is to try to prevent this from happening by having an adequate length of the rule limb in your reconstruction. And that brings us to the end of this episode on gastric cancer. It is a little bit of a complex topic, so please let me know if you think I've said something that's not correct or if things are done differently in your institution. I will be getting a guest on the podcast soon to ask some of the questions I have about esophageal and gastric cancer. So hopefully that will help us get to the bottom of some of the things I wasn't quite clear on. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>